Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ashley Palmerales, and I am so glad to be here with Drs. Greg Allison and Andreas Kostenberger, authors of The Holy Spirit, Theology for the People of God, a 2020 B&H academic book. I'm so glad that both Dr. Allison and Dr. Kostenberger are able to join me for this podcast. And apart from this podcast episode, you can find more than a handful of excellent podcast interviews with either Dr. Allison or Dr. Kostenberger on other podcast shows. Dr. Allison and Dr. Kostenberger, I want to thoroughly thank you for your time and meeting in this new year to answer questions on your book, The Holy Spirit, Theology for the People of God, and for the countless number of hours that you and your family have devoted to your time on such. Yes, uh, thank you so much for having us on today, Ashley. It was a real joy to collaborate on the book You know, many years ago, I published an article with the title, What Does It Mean to Be Filled with the Spirit? And so I have a longstanding interest in exploring the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, and we're needed uh, to sharpen our understanding and also to correct any misconceptions. So when Dr. Allison invited me to contribute the biblical theological portion of the book, I was very grateful and excited for the opportunity. And so the series for which we are writing features a biblical scholar and a systematic theologian on a theological topic. And so when I was asked by BNH Academic who would be an excellent biblical theologian to write the theology of the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament and the New Testament, I, of course, automatically thought of my friend, Dr. Kostenberger. And as he said, it was a complete joy to collaborate together on this project. Thank you so very much. Now, before we delve into questions on the Holy Spirit, theology for the people of God, would you mind introducing yourselves and providing the listener a better synopsis of your work, both individually and in collaboration and writing the Holy Spirit, theology for the people of God? Yes. So um, I'm originally from Vienna, Austria, uh, a native uh, German speaker and uh, was converted to Christ at uh, age 23 uh, through the witness of an American opera student. And interestingly enough, uh, through the reading of uh, a passage on the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 5. I I came to the United States in my mid-20s to study theology and uh, met my Canadian wife, Uh, in seminary in South Carolina. And after this, I studied under the noted scholar D. Carson at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago uh, and uh, earned a PhD in New Testament. My dissertation was on the mission theme in John's Gospel, John 20, 21, as the Father sent me, so send I you. 
the last 25 years, I've taught New Testament at two Southern Baptist seminaries, uh, Southeastern and Midwestern. My wife, Marnie, and I have been married for over 31 years, and we have four grown children, two girls, and two boys. Uh, this year, I'm on sabbatical, and I'm working on a new book on biblical theology. And uh, I'm Dr. Allison. I was born and raised in Chicago and became a serious follower of Jesus Christ my senior year in high school. Um, my wife and I met uh, during our university days. Both of us were involved in what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And uh, we were on the staff of Crew for a number of years. I did my Master's of Divinity degree and my PhD uh, degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, like Dr. Kostenberger did. Uh, my dissertation topic was the perspicuity, that is the clarity of Scripture, uh, part of the doctrine of, of Scripture. Um, I taught for nine years at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon. I taught both church history and systematic theology. And for the last 17 years, I've been at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where I focus on uh, systematic theology. Uh, my wife and I have been married for uh, 44 and a half years. We have three grown adult children and 10 and a half uh, grandchildren. And uh, so that's a little bit about me. Thank you so much. That is very impressive to hear from um, both. And to begin our questions, in the series introduction, editors Dockery, Fenn, and Morgan state that the Holy Spirit theology for the people of God is for all believers, noting that theology is for the people of God. Every believer is called to be a theologian, and healthy theology that matures the head, heart, and hands will not only enable believers to move toward maturity, but will result in the praise and exaltation of God. Can you share further thought on these encouraging opening words? Well, yes, um, I, I think this is a very important point. Too often theology uh, is thought of as the exclusive domain of professional experts. But in truth, every believer is called to think theologically, to, to think about God and his person and work. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, asked the penetrating question, when was the last time you thought about God? And uh, actually, the truth is, for many of us, it's been too long. And that's convicting, because as Christians, we should think about God uh, every day. You know, at the same time, I would add, though, that there is a place for trained theologians, uh, such as Greg and myself, to put our education to use and to equip other believers to think rightly and biblically about God, or in our case, more specifically about the Holy Spirit. It's very important uh, as a Christian to know uh, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as you know, there are quite a few misconceptions about who this, uh, the Holy Spirit is and, and what he does. So as theologians, we can render a valuable service to the church by providing a, a thoroughly and accurate 
correctly presented uh, biblical account of the Holy Spirit's person and work. Let me connect with what uh, Dr. Kostenberger said a few minutes ago in terms of uh, Paul's writing about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5, 18 to 21. Um, part of your question has to do with the Spirit's uh, leading us to give praise to God. Uh, it's very interesting, that whole context of that passage in Ephesians 5 is uh, about the church being uh, guided and directed, uh, being uh, empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit or the result of the church walking in the Spirit has to do with genuine worship of God and authentic community, uh, a church that is characterized by gratefulness and thanksgiving to God in all circumstances, and also love and encouragement and devotion to one another. So I think one of the emphases that we have in our book is the reality that the Holy Spirit is uh, his presence, his person, his power is not just for us individuals, but it's for our communities of faith. And the, the Holy Spirit is prompting us towards the praise of God and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, love for God and love for one another. Amen. Thank you so much. And to move on to question two, I appreciate Dr. Kostenberger's introduction, testimony, and speaking on his coming to faith in Christ and understanding the Holy Spirit as a person rather than a force. Or I add, who rather than a what? Worship songs such as, Lord, I need you, use this interchange when referring to God and his spirit. In the Holy Spirit theology for the people of God, I see the use of who and the Holy Spirit in personhood. Can you explain the significance of this reference and if time reflect on the use or omission of capitalization in spirit, he and servant? Yes, um, I think actually you're referring to the time I talk about in, in the introduction when as a new Christian, I asked to be baptized in my local church and the pastor asked me among other things, you know, to make sure I was ready. If I thought the spirit was a person or a force, I'm sure he thought that was a pretty, pretty elementary question, but uh, I was so new in the faith that after some hesitation, I said, well, uh, probably more of a force. <laughs> Uh, it's funny looking back <laughs> on that now uh, after, you know, many years of seminary training. Uh, but I think we see here biblical theology at its best because there's a certain progression in what the Bible teaches on the Spirit of God. Uh, the first time the Spirit is mentioned in the Bible in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the second verse of our Bibles, we read that the Spirit hovered over the waters which uses the image of a, of a mother bird hovering over her young. Uh, and then later in the New Testament, it says the Spirit of God rushed upon or, or stirred the judges and leaders of Israel. Uh, so in the early stages of the Bible's teaching in the Holy Spirit, it's sometimes difficult to distinguish between God and the Spirit, who's often called the Spirit of God, uh, but as we read on in the Old Testament, the Spirit is increasingly portrayed as uh, possessing an identity and an agency uh, of his own in distinction from God the Father. So 
when it says in the Bible that the Spirit does something, such as come upon a, a craftsman building the tabernacle or empower a prophet to speak the words of God, uh, he's portrayed as an actor in his own right, not simply as uh, an impersonal extension of God. And of course, uh, in the New Testament, this portrayal uh, intensifies and it becomes clear that the Spirit is a person and that the Spirit is himself God. Uh, and then after the, the, the closing of the New Testament canon, this has led the church to develop the, the doctrine of the Trinity, which teaches that God is one God in three persons, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, you also mentioned the use of capitalization or non-capitalization with regard to the word uh, spirit, you know, whether capital S or, or lowercase s. Um, I think translators are often faced with the important question as to whether uh, the Hebrew word for spirit, uh, ruach, or the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, referred to uh, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, with a capital S, or whether the reference is to the human spirit or or even the wind. So when writing the book, we, we had to make numerous adjudications as to whether a given reference is to the Holy Spirit or to the human spirit, and sometimes even English translations will differ in this regard. Now, it may be helpful for our listeners to know that at the end of our part one, our, our biblical theological portion in the book, uh, we include a full listing of all the references to the Holy Spirit in both Testaments. If anybody wanted to study uh, the biblical teaching on the Holy Spirit for themselves, they could easily do so just using that list of references. And so when Scripture clearly indicates that the referent is the Holy Spirit, we do want to emphasize that the Holy Spirit is a person, more specifically a divine person, co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. When we think about God the Father, it's fairly easy for us to think of a person. Ditto with the Son. We think of God the Son as a divine person. It's more difficult to think of the Holy Spirit as a person because what is a spirit, right? And the old expression for the third person of the Trinity was Holy Ghost. So we immediately think of this ethereal force or influence or power, kind of like Casper, the friendly ghost. And so the, the, the expression Holy Ghost is not too helpful in cementing the idea that this third person, the Holy Spirit, is an actual person. But it's very important for us to emphasize he's not a force or a power field, an influence, just a divine force. Yes, he is all-powerful. Yes, he is influential. But as Dr. Kostenberger pointed out, he's a divine agent. He is a person uh, who acts, who uh, guides, who uh, matures us in Christ uh, and things like that. Today, there's a very strong emphasis, particularly in our American churches, on this acquisition of power and influence and oftentimes the Holy Spirit is associated with that influence, with that energy that we kind of 
throw on people or confer on people. We don't believe that's the biblical presentation. He is a divine person. He is the one who leads and guides. We are the ones who follow him. He is not uh, responsive to us. He's not at our beck and call. Rather, we are to follow his leading because he's the divine third person of the Trinity. In part one, chapter four, one can read a reference to Joel on the universal outpouring of God's spirit on all humanity, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or social status, and Peter's understanding of this passage as fulfilled at Pentecost. As explained in part one and in your book, The Holy Spirit Theology for the People of God, what is listed in reference to this as a focus event of Pentecost as a one-time occurrence or post this time as an end times post-Pentecost continuum? Yes, actually, with uh, regard to Pentecost as a one-time occurrence, yes, Acts 2 uh, represents a unique salvation historical event that marks the universal outpouring of a spirit following Christ's ascension. And I should add that in the book of Acts, you have two related similar outpourings of a spirit also on two other ethnic groups, namely the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and then uh, the Roman centurion Cornelius as a representative of the Gentile world in chapter 10. Uh, But now that the Spirit has universally been made available to everyone who believes in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, gender, social status. Uh, There's no more waiting period, but uh, believers receive the Spirit when they put their faith in Christ. Um, At conversion, they are regenerated, that is, they're spiritually reborn and set apart for God in initial sanctification. And with regard to the end times uh, that you mentioned, uh, Peter quotes an Old Testament passage from uh, the book of Joel, uh, who says that that universal outpouring of a spirit would take place in the last days. And so uh, what we see here is that Pentecost marks the beginning of the end times, biblically speaking. So biblically speaking, we already now live in the end times, the age of the Spirit. You know, as I worked on the book, one thing that struck me, especially when uh, studying the New Testament use of the Old Testament with regard to the Spirit, is the way in which the New Testament authors used precisely the most appropriate Old Testament passage uh, to describe a given New Testament event. Uh, and the outpouring of a spirit at Pentecost, uh, according to Acts 2, is a remarkable example. As I mentioned, uh, the Apostle Peter here cites a passage from the prophet Joel uh, where he prophesies, and I quote, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Uh, and then he goes on to say on, on men and women, on, on young and old, and even on servants, And he ends the quote with the line that says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, You can look through the entire Old Testament 
as I've done, and not find a better passage to quote in relation to Pentecost than Joel 2. Uh, and of course, then in the rest of the book of Acts, we see how God pours out his spirit uh, on Jews and non-Jews, on men and women, uh, young and old, uh, on everyone who believes. And so in this way, we see that the spirit authenticates and validates people's faith in the crucified and, and risen Messiah, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see uh, in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost is the beginning of the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And as Dr. Kostenberger just underscored, this means that the Spirit is poured out on anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, be that men or women, young or old, slave or free. And uh, it's picked up in, uh, in Galatians, uh, in Galatians 3. Uh, 28, the, the same notion in the Apostle Paul's writing, uh, he says, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all, are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean that our, our ethnicities are destroyed or our genders are destroyed or anything like that. It just means that those barriers that often separate us uh, no longer have to separate us because we are united with Christ and we're uh, indwelt and uh, by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are part of the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's this great unifying factor who is the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Those are wonderful explanations. And in part two, systematic theology, you mark the historical neglect of the church in fully recognizing the Holy Spirit and 20th century spirit-filled movements. Can you build more on both this neglect and rising and the similarities or differences among the three spirit ages, the age of the spirit, the spirit of the age, and the spiritual age? Uh, yes. So if we look at uh, church history, we see that at the beginning period in the early church, with the uh, expansive preaching of the gospel, a burning question arose, uh, who is this Jesus Christ who is at the center of the message of the good news? Who is this one who claims to be the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the one who was crucified and resurrected for the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. So the identity of Jesus Christ became an extremely important uh, question, uh, particularly in a monotheistic Jewish world. And so the early church, beginning in the third, continuing in the fourth through the sixth, seventh centuries, right, really focused on the identity of Jesus Christ. He is fully God. He is God incarnate, uh, the God-man Jesus Christ. And so the focus of the attention of the early church was on the person of Jesus Christ. At about the same time, now we're in the fourth century or so, the questions about the Holy Spirit began to arise. So if God the Father is God and God the Son is God, but there's only one God, who is this third guy over here? Who's this Holy Spirit uh, into, whom, into whose name uh, new followers of Christ are baptized? this Holy Spirit who is part of the prayers of the early church. Who is he? And so the early church began to focus, on, focus its attention on the deity and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And so there was a real a thriving, a flourishing of a theology considering the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, sadly, I would say, and we're speaking in very broad terms, that the church began to, could we say, domesticate the Holy, church, uh, Holy Spirit in terms of kind of locking the Spirit's person and work into the church, into its hierarchy, into its sacraments. And the notion of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh, the Holy Spirit guiding and gifting just regular people in the church became lost for far too long of a time. In the uh, beginning of the Reformation, when we look at people like uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, they resurrected great attention on the Holy Spirit. In fact, John Calvin is often referred to as the theologian of the Holy Spirit, such that he could say something like this, all of the benefits of salvation that the Father gives to his people through the Son actually are communicated to us through the Holy Spirit. So there was a revival of interest of the Holy Spirit to the point where several centuries later, we had this famous Puritan by the name of John Owen, who wrote a massive tome, the the largest volume ever written about the Holy Spirit, which again, fueled interest in the Spirit in his work. Fast forward to the beginning of the 20th century, and we have what we call the Azusa Street Revival in uh, 1906. We have the birth of the Pentecostal denominations, the Pentecostal theology and practice. Now the church's attention became very much riveted on the spirit. In the 1960s and 1970s, this Pentecostal theology and practice of the spirit uh, was able to uh, infiltrate mainline denominations like the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, Methodist Church, and so forth. And so, again, this very deep interest in the spirit arose. And then later on in the 20th century, the evangelical churches also rediscovered the spirit. And so we have, say, in the last 100 years, particularly the last 50 years or so, a growing and I think rightful interest in the Holy Spirit. And so in the book, I talk about three ages. One of them is the age of the Spirit, age of the Holy Spirit. This is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. It's the age in which we as Christians live. There's also the spirit of the age, which is the worldview that captures the attention of people in the American society. It's a worldview about comfort and happiness and security and autonomy and things like that. And it often finds itself in great conflict with biblical values and virtues. And then I talk about the spiritual age. It's interesting, most Americans uh, living in this uh, spirit of the age, they're, they're very spiritual in some ways, though it's a very anonymous kind of amorphous spirituality. Take an Oprah, for example, who would say, you know, there's as many ways to God as there are people. Uh, That's not really a biblical view, but it represents this spiritual age where so many Americans tired of materialism and just the grind of work, they're looking for a deeper meaning uh, and experience of life. And they often associate that in some way with the spirit. So I see three ages, the age of the spirit, the spirit of the age, and the spiritual age. Thank you so much. And both parts one and two in chapters 6, 13, and 19 cover the topic of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I applaud you in bringing light to this topic, especially in noting that Christians should be circumspect in their assessment of what is of God and what is of Satan, and that the tendency to attribute to the evil one, doctrines and practices with which one disagrees may run the risk of being not only naive, presumptuous, foolish, or wrong, but blasphemous against the Holy Spirit. 
Can you provide an overview as what is covered in the Holy Spirit theology for the people of God on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Yes, Ashley. As you mentioned, we cover this topic in, in, in both parts. And so I'm going to just maybe uh, get us started by uh, taking a quick look at the actual passage. Now, this is an important um, event in Jesus' uh, ministry on earth. It is uh, a, an event that is featured in three of the four Gospels, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so uh, uh, just looking at the, uh, the event in, in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22, we see there that Jesus heals a man who was both blind and mute. And after the healing, uh, many of the, the, the ordinary people were amazed and, 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 and asked if he could be the son of David, which is another way of saying, could he be the Messiah who was expected to work miracles? But uh, the opposition, the, the, the authorities, uh, the, the Pharisees, uh, when they heard of a healing, they attributed the healing, the miracle, to the power of Satan. And uh, it's interesting how Jesus responds. The first thing he says, well, uh, a kingdom divided against itself does not stand. Of course, many Americans think that it was Abraham Lincoln who said that. And he did say that, but he was not the first one uh, to say that. And so the initial reference uh, is by Jesus here. And so he says it doesn't even make sense to say that Satan would cast himself out. And I love the fact that Jesus starts on the level of just sheer logic and common sense here. Uh, but then he moves on uh, to talk about the fact that, well, uh, for me to be able to cast out a demon uh, through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit must be stronger than the evil spirit, you know, the demon. And so the important point there is that Jesus asserts his greater authority over the evil supernatural uh, spirit world. And then he ends up with this famous saying about the blasphemy against the spirit. It's essentially a shot across the bow here against uh, his opponents. And he says, well, it's one thing to blaspheme what he calls the son of man, which is a self-reference, uh, implying that he himself is God as well, uh, as opposed to merely human Messiah. But he says here, uh, his opponents really were in deep water because they managed to not only blaspheme uh, God the Son, but they also blasphemed God the Holy Spirit, which of course implies that uh, the Holy Spirit is divine, uh, just like God the Father and God the Son are. Uh, and so Jesus then says, well, uh, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So, of course, that is a very stern warning not to impugn the character and the integrity uh, or the power of the Holy Spirit, as uh, his opponents have just done. So, of course, then the question becomes, well, what about us today? Can we commit the blasphemy uh, against the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to let Dr. Ellison address that part of the question, because he deals with that in chapter uh, you know, 13 to 19, part two of our book. 
So there are uh, a number of views on the uh, question, uh, can the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be committed today? Um, I think there's two big uh, answers. One would be no, because this is a sin, an unpardonable sin that could only be committed when Jesus was on earth. Only then could people maliciously and very illogically uh, refute or refuse the work of the Spirit, um, deny the work of the Spirit uh, in Jesus and attribute instead to uh, the evil one. Um, The other answer would be, yes, uh, people could still today commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, again, by seeing Christ at work in his church or through his church and saying, well, no, that's not really the Holy Spirit uh, working to make Christ known through his church. That's really the evil one uh, who is doing so. And and so we have to be really cautious here. Um, Neither one of us wants to uh, say we have the right answer to that question. I think it's something that our listeners should investigate for themselves. But I would say, I, I, I particularly in the context in which we find ourselves, in which many Christians are uh, divide, divided from one another, uh, they're, they're very uh, capable of um, blasting and criticizing one another. I, I don't want to say that uh, when a Christian says to, about another Christian, oh, that's the evil one at work in my brother, in my sister. I don't want to say that's necessarily blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What I do want to say is let's be very cautious in about is in saying um, of Christians with whom we disagree, Christians that we have a different doctrinal position on or have a different practice. I think it's, it's very unwise and perhaps even dangerous to attribute that kind of stuff, that those things to the evil one or demonic activity or things like that. Uh, I, I, I think we are called to love one another, respect one another, listen carefully to one another, try to be united with one another. Uh, I'm not saying that we buy everything that everybody, everyone says and we just accept things naively. I'm just saying, let's can we be cautious and turn down the heat and, and not so easily charge our opponents with uh, being uh, receptors of demonic activity. I guess that's what I would want to say. Thank you so much. Those are great explanations. And last questions with a concentration on part two, the conclusion, but in no way neglectful of the Holy Spirit theology for the people of God as a whole. Can you explain the unity and diversity of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit as three in one? So, Ashley, I think we need about two hours on this one. (laughs) This, of course, is the doctrine of the Trinity. So uh, briefly uh, and incompletely, um, we will say as uh, as Christians in accordance with Scripture that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each one of the three persons is diverse. The Father's not the Son, the Father's not the Spirit, and so forth. Um, And each one of the three persons is fully God. So God the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God, yet there's only one God. There's not three gods, but one God who eternally exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so the father is distinct from the son. They have a very special eternal relationship. The technical term for that is eternal generation. The father eternally generates or begets the son. That is, he grants to the son his person of the son, his sonship life, and that distinguishes the father from the son. Uh, And then the Holy Spirit is distinguished from the father and the son because uh, he has a special relationship with both of them, a special eternal relationship with both the father and the son, and we call that eternal procession. That is, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from both the father and the son. That is, the father and the son grant the third person his person of the Holy Spirit. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct in terms of these eternal relations. They also are distinct in terms of their roles in creation and salvation, sanctification, and so forth, such that we often think of the Father as creator, the Son as Savior, and the Spirit as the sanctifier. There's some truth to that, but we must be very cautious not to separate so neatly the three persons in their works of creation and salvation and so forth. In fact, we affirm what we call the doctrine of the inseparable operations of the three persons, that is, in all divine works, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are actively and collaboratively working together. They they work inseparably. They always work together. That doesn't mean that one of the persons uh, is not It is not the focus of a work. For example, it's only the second person, the Son of God, who becomes incarnate. But notice he becomes incarnate because he's sent by the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about the incarnation. So it's only the second person, the Son, who becomes the incarnate one, the God-man, but that action is never apart from the work of the Father and the Spirit. Similarly, the Holy Spirit is at work in terms of his many ministries in our life. But again, his work is never apart from the Father and the Son. So yes, we can distinguish them to some degree in terms of their roles in our lives. But again, we have to be very cautious about that. So to summarize, we believe that there is one God. So one God who... uh, eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is in every way equal to the Son, who is in every way equal to the Holy Spirit. The Father is omnipotent, all-powerful, so is the Son, so is the Spirit. The Father is eternal, so is the Son, so is the Holy Spirit. The Father is gracious, and he's just, so is the Son, so is the Holy Spirit. There are no distinctions in terms of their divine attributes, their divine characteristics. There's only one God. But the three do uh, are different persons, three different uh, divine persons, according to their eternal relations. The Father's special relation with the Son, called eternal generation. The Father and the Son's special relationship with the Spirit, it's called eternal procession. So the three are distinguished in that way, and also in terms of the roles that they play in our lives. Dr. Allison and Dr. Kostenberger, thank you so very much for this in-depth look into the Holy Spirit, Theology for the People of God. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Though, before we leave, might you tell our audience and myself great news regarding any possible work or research plans? Yes. uh, uh, Just very briefly, I have a new uh, commentary uh, a biblical theological commentary uh, on 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus 
that will be released in late January by Lexham Press, which is called 1 to 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, also a new book, Signs of the Messiah, an introduction to John's gospel. I think that'll be of interest, especially for younger believers who are beginning to uh, get serious about uh, studying, uh, especially the Gospel of John. And my current project is a biblical theology, which is under contract with Crossway. After this, I hope to write a fresh, detailed commentary on John's Gospel, uh, drawing on 25 years of research. As for me, in uh, March of this year, I'm coming out with a short little book called The Church, an Introduction. I think this will be of great interest to your listeners who just want a very basic overview of what the church is. Uh, so the characteristics and the ministries and the leaders of the church and all like that. And then on May 11th of this year, I'm coming out with a book with Baker called uh, Embodied, Living as Whole People in a Fractured World. It's um, my work on a theology of human embodiment. So what does scripture and good theology teach us about life in our bodies? And so I look at our uh, created bodies our gendered bodies, our particular bodies, our uh, social bodies, and our sexual bodies, and then build on those uh, categories. And I look at the body at worship, how we clothe the body. I get into things like tattoos. I look at sins against the body, like gluttony and sloth. I do some stuff with exercise and nutrition. I look at suffering, death, resurrection of the body. So uh, that book will be coming out in May, Embodied, Living as Whole People in a Fractured World. Thank you so much, Drs. Greg Allison and Andreas Kostenberger, for being on the New Books Network and for providing our audience and myself a deeper look into the Holy Spirit theology for the people of God. I have thoroughly enjoyed our time. So have we, Ashley. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you.